If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. As you're turning there, I don't know if you realize it or not, but uh, we as a church are actually part of a larger network, a larger uh, denomination of churches known as the Evangelical Free Church of America. That's where we get the free and Hershey free, and you may not know a lot about that, so I wanted to give you a heads up. As we continue our journey through Mark's gospel, next week, Kevin Complin will be with us. He's actually the president of the Evangelical Free Church of America, so you'll get to know just a little bit more about the larger group of which we are a part. So I think, I think, I think you'll enjoy that. I look forward to introducing him to you. Now, we're coming back to our study in Mark's gospel. And as I start, let me tell you about a dinner I had with a friend of mine several months ago. Several months ago, I had a dinner with a friend who was on the board of several startup companies that are dealing in the area of blockchain technology. Now, if you never heard of it or you don't know what it means, you're not alone. I had dinner with him. I still don't understand it. Simply put, I would say this, blockchain technology is the technology behind things like Bitcoin in terms of cryptocurrency. And I, you know, we, we started talking about this in the course of dinner. I'm like, oh, ho-hum, big deal, blockchain, I don't know, that's just for the, you know, the, the techie people. But over the course of our dinner, he began explaining to me several future applications of this technology. For instance, he explained to me that this technology would eventually have the ability to transform the way governments and Relief organizations respond to humanitarian disasters throughout the world. And I came away from, from that conversation just kind of going, wow. If what he described to me during this meal comes to pass, this, this is a disruptive technology. Because it will shake up the status quo. It's going to change things. I tell you that story for this reason. We're coming back, right, this week to our study in Mark's gospel. And as we continue in Mark's gospel, particularly the opening chapters of Mark's gospel, Mark is wanting us to understand the identity of Jesus Christ. But he wants the reality of who Christ is to grip us in such a way that it's like we take a step back and say, wow, this is disruptive because this changes everything. This shakes up the status quo. For instance, if you recall in chapter 1, we see the baptism of Jesus, and there's this phrase where it talks about the heavens being torn open, and the language there is particularly strong. It's the, it's the idea of being ripped apart, never to go back exactly the way it was before. And that language occurs one other place in Mark's gospel, and we'll, we'll get to it when we get to the crucifixion because... After the crucifixion, the curtain in the temple is torn asunder, never to come back again. Right? I mean, Mark wants you to say, wants you to say, wow, this, this Jesus, this, it shakes up everything. It changes everything. It changes the status quo. And we're going to see that in chapter 3 through several different scenes. Now, let me just introduce you to the different scenes we see in chapter 3. We're not going to look at all of them closely, but let me introduce you to them by pointing out several things. First of all, in these scenes, we see the rising popularity of Jesus. Word is spreading in the early season of his public ministry that of things he's able to do. He's a provocative teacher, and he's creating curiosity. And so word is spreading, and, and so at different points, we see he's just crowded by people pressing in. So look at verses 9 and 10. Of chapter 3, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him 
to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with the diseases were, were pushing forward to touch him. And apparently at different points, Jesus would, would in essence get into a small boat and go out into just the, off the shoreline to teach the people because people had been pressing in so much. As you see this scene, think Best Buy on Black Friday. Okay, some of you have been there. Some of you dared to do that. Bless you. You know, and you see people pushing in for those doorbuster sales, and they're pushing, and they're trying to get in. You're going after whatever. Well, this is the way people were pushing in at different times to see Jesus. So there's rising popularity. But not only is there rising popularity, there is also rising opposition. Look at the first scene in chapter 3. We see Jesus in a synagogue. It's on the Sabbath, the holy day. And not only is Jesus there, but we see religious leaders there. And, and we're already told they're beginning to have questions and doubts and frustrations with Jesus. They're concerned about him. So now they're starting to reach a point where they are looking for him to mess up so we can get him out of the way. And so the question is, will he heal on the Sabbath? Because you see, according to their rules, you weren't supposed to work on the holy day, and that included healing. Well, of course, that's exactly what Jesus does. He heals, he heals a man with a withered hand. And notice, notice the response of the religious leaders there. Verse 6, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So here in the storyline of Jesus, we're given this early clue that the, there's going to be opposition that will intensify, that will ultimately lead to his execution. So when you think about it, this scene around Jesus is, it's almost chaotic, isn't it? Because there's, man, there are people pressing in, there's rising popularity, but there's also rising opposition. But in the middle of this excitement, this animosity, this confusion, this chaos that's surrounding Jesus, I also want you to see this. In the midst of all this stuff going on, he is a man on a mission. He's a man on a mission. He's not... He's not going to be deterred from his mission. Furthermore, we see that he is, as he is a man on a mission, he's inviting others to follow. I mean, even as all of this chaotic activity is, is around him, his life is moving in a particular direction, and we see he is inviting others to join him. Verses 13 and 14. Jesus went up to a mountain and called, him, called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and that they might be sent out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So in the midst of all this activity around Jesus, he appoints these 12. And these 12 individuals are going to be the guys in whom he invests. They're going to be the guys that are with him. And, and so moving forward, we're not only going to learn more about who Jesus is and his mission, we're also going to watch him build into the lives of these disciples. And in the course of seeing Jesus, we're going to learn what it means to follow him. And as you see Jesus call these initial disciples, notice they are called to be with him, and then he sends them out, right? And that was Jesus' method of training. I want you to be with me. This is what a disciple looks like. I want you to be with me. I want you to learn and observe, but I also I want to send you out because you're to be part of the mission as well. For those of us who are followers, this, this is to be the life of, of a disciple. In fact, I, I would put it this way. You can't come close to Jesus without being drawn into his mission. 
you can't come close to Jesus without being drawn into his mission, right? They are drawn in, but they will be sent out. And we will see this as we follow the storyline of Jesus. So in the midst of all this chaos, he's a man with a mission. And as we continue to see this mission unfold in, in specific ways in this chapter, we see how Jesus is disrupting the status quo. And to show you what I mean, let's, let's now come to the last two stories in this chapter, beginning in verse 20. Now, before I read the text, I, I want to give you a heads up. What you're about to see in Mark's gospel is the first example of what is sometimes referred to as Mark's sandwich technique. Think about a sandwich. Sorry, I'm making you hungry here, but and you're going, and Chick-fil-A is closed today. Um, think about a sand, this chicken sandwich, the barest elements of the chicken sandwich, bread, meat, bread, okay? Bread, meat, bread. Well, here's what Mark does. Mark starts one particular story, then he goes to a second story, then he completes the first story. First story, second story, back to first story, right? Bread, meat, bread, a sandwich technique. And Mark will do this approximately five times in his gospel, where he starts the first story, goes to a second story, then completes the first one. And part of what he's doing is he's not simply telling different stories. He is, he's wanting us to see different ways that the stories are connected. So let's look at these two stories. You'll see the first story involves Jesus' family. Start at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, They went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So the first story involves his family. But then Mark begins the second story, which focuses on religious leaders. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander they utter But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Notice we're back to the first story. They sent someone in to call him, and a crowd was seated around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Then Jesus says something really provocative. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now notice as as we begin to see the way Jesus is disrupting things, this disruption in this text involves two different groups, right? Two different stories. First of all, there's Jesus' family. Now, we've just celebrated with family. You know, you kind of, you've heard from families today, and family's important to us, but, but it was different in the ancient Near East. Family really was everything. 
I mean, who you were was defined by your family. Your sense of belonging was, it was all focused on family. And, and it's, it's hard for us to fully appreciate what that was like. And so Jesus' family hears about things going on. They hear about his ability to do certain things. Perhaps they hear about his teaching. Maybe even they hear the way he is causing division and people are starting to have concerns. And so they go from Nazareth to Galilee because we're, we're going to take charge of him. In, in contemporary language, we would say this is going to be a family intervention. And on the one hand, perhaps they are motivated because they're concerned. You know, what's, what's, what's gotten into Jesus? When did he get this big head and start to do these amazing things? But I would also suggest that because family is so important, the things that another family member does have an impact on you. So arguably part of the motivation is, is to pr pr protect the family reputation. So we see the family. Then, then notice the second story is, is, is about religious leaders. And, of course, these leaders have concerns as well. Now, notice they don't question Jesus' power. They question its source. They're not denying what Jesus is able to do. They just, they just question the source by which he does it, and they ultimately attribute it, attribute it to Satan, to the demonic realm. He is, he's casting out demons, but he's doing so in the power of the evil one. Now, as you see these two stories put together, please note that in so many ways, these, these were the building blocks of Jesus' culture, right? Family, faith, religion. I mean, this is who you were in Jesus' context. And yet the very people that are part of these building blocks are misunderstanding who he is. And I think this is what part Mark wants us to see. See, in, in a real sense, I think each of these groups, they had a box and they were trying to put Jesus in the box. This is my family box. Jesus, you need, to, you need to fit into the box. You need to be a good son. You need to be a good brother. And he wasn't fitting into the box. For the religious leaders, this is our leadership box. This is what religious leaders are supposed to look like and you've, you've just gone a bit too far. You're blowing the status quo. And, and so you'll notice that one of the things Mark does to, in, in parallel, you know, it's for the family, it's he's out of his mind. For the leaders, it's he's doing this by the power of Satan. And in different ways, Mark is showing us that these are very different groups, but in their own way, they're missing out on Jesus, who Jesus is, because they're trying to put him in this box. And he doesn't fit in your little box. He's redefining those categories. And I think for us, uh, there, there's a lesson here as well. And that is be, be careful about putting Jesus in your pre-existing boxes, your pre-existing categories. You need to let him define himself on his own terms because he doesn't fit in your box. Maybe my box is, well, you know, I think there's some good things in Christianity as long as you don't take it too seriously, right? I mean, Christianity talks about the importance of love. Man, particularly in an age where our culture is divided, we need to love and we need to love one another. Jesus is always good about saying that. So I can take that from Jesus, and I've got this, I've got this little box, and Jesus fits into this good little teacher box. 
See, what we're learning in this passage is Jesus, Jesus disrupts the status quo. He doesn't, he doesn't fit into people's pre-existing categories. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, quote, You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Jesus, I mean, these, these people come with their existing categories and Jesus is just blowing it up. It's disrupting the status quo, which means we need to pay attention to him and understanding who he is and understanding the reality of his mission. And so with that in mind, let's just look at the way Jesus' mission is presented right in the middle of this text. And let me just highlight three different dimensions of Jesus' mission. First of all, Jesus comes to forgive sin. He comes to forgive sin. Remember, the religious leaders come to him, and they, they're not denying his power. They're just saying, you're doing it in the authority of Satan. And so Jesus tells a simple parable, right? About, and in essence, it's like, what do you mean I'm doing this in the power of Satan? You're saying Satan drives out Satan? Why would he do that? I mean, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan just wouldn't operate against himself. And, of course, he tells this story, right, that, that to, to bind the strong man, you've got to first go in and, 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 and tie him up before you plunder his house. And, and he, as he says that, he then says the, these profound, provocative words, truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, as Jesus is talking about binding the strong man, he is, in essence, saying, I'm, I'm doing that. And in the process of binding the forces of evil, he is bringing forgiveness. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins. Now, as you hear those words, first of all, notice, notice the phrase, truly, I tell you. This will occur multiple times in the Gospels, and it's, it's a way of Jesus asserting his own authority. It's a provocative claim of authority. Truly, I say to you. But then hear those words, all sins forgiven. Now, just let those words sink in, because on the one hand, notice what he is saying about us. <laughs> I mean... Whether you realize it or not, in one level, he is confronting us with our own sin and brokenness. He's not sugarcoating it. He's confronting us with the truth that we've been born into a moral universe. And with our sin and brokenness, there's a debt that's created. It must be addressed. The penalty must be paid. And Jesus doesn't hold back from that. That's the assumption of what he's saying here. There's no place to hide. Yet even as he confronts us with the problem, he also confronts us with the all-encompassing reality of his grace, right? All sins, all their sins can be forgiven. 
So we need to understand the reality of sin, but we always need to understand it within the context of God's grace. For some of you, perhaps you need to understand that the first step in following Jesus starts here in understanding your brokenness, your imperfection, your need for God's forgiving work, which is made possible through the death of Christ. That's what he is anticipating here. When we enter, we begin this journey by putting our faith and trust in him. He's come to forgive sin. And, and just for a moment, let me ask you, are there, are there certain deep regrets in your life? Certain mistakes that you have made that at times still haunt you deeply? I wish I'd handled this relationship differently. I wish I'd handled this conversation differently. I wish I hadn't said that or done that. I wish I'd taken advantage of this opportunity, but I blew it. I was scared. As you think about your deepest regrets, your deepest mistakes, just hear these words, all their sins forgiven. Wow, what an amazing way Jesus is disrupting the status quo. He comes to forgive sin. And of course, this is so encouraging. But then it feels like Jesus pulls the rug right out from under us, right? I mean, all their sins forgiven. Then verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, what is this talking about? He talks about the all-encompassing reality of God's grace. But then he says, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that's not forgiven. Well, to understand this, understand that as we continue in the New Testament, we, we begin to realize that the work of the Holy Spirit is, is to magnify Jesus. It's to draw people to Jesus and to draw them into relationship and to empower them to follow and to be transformed. Yet as the leaders in this passage are experiencing the work of the Spirit through Christ, they are attributing it to Satan. And this is the blasphemy that Jesus is talking about, right? He, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. They were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. So what exactly does this mean? Well, I think when we think about this blasphemy Jesus is describing, he is describing a defiant, willful rejection of the Spirit's work in a person's life. It is, it's not a careless act. It is a hardened attitude, a hardened attitude of rejection, a settled rejection of the Spirit's witness to Jesus. That's what he's talking about. So I would say if, you, if you're worried that you've committed it, then you haven't. Because the very fact that that would concern you shows your openness to God's ongoing work. So Jesus has come to forgive sin, but not only has he come to forgive sin, he's also come to conquer evil. Right, Jesus, he tells the story, right? Of, well, you know, well, if you're going to go in and if you're going to plunder the house of the strong man, you have to first tie him up. And that's, that's a picture of his own ministry. That's what he's doing. There is a strong man, but Jesus is stronger. Remember, that's how John the Baptist described him in chapter 1. The stronger one is coming. Now, I realize when we get to passages like this, for some of us, maybe you struggle with this whole idea of demons, of Satan. 
Maybe you would say, you know, surely we've outgrown that, right? This was a primitive time. People used to attribute everything to demons, all the problems to demons. But we're past that. I mean, I may be waiting to binge watch the third season of Stranger Things, but other than that, I'm not really into this, right? But if you struggle with this whole concept of Satan and demons, let, let me just ask you to do two things. First of all, I would just challenge you to pay careful attention to the Gospels. Because the gospel writers do make distinctions between people who are, are simply ill versus those who are under demonization. I mean, the, the gospel writers themselves don't attribute all challenges or hardships or maladies to, to the forces of evil. Furthermore, I would, just, I would just encourage you just to think for a moment about human experience. I mean, we can go back and think about the Holocaust think about Cambodia. That comes to my mind because one of the most sobering experiences I've ever had in my life was to stand in the killing fields outside Phnom Penh where at least 14,000 people have been murdered. And I look at places like that, or more recently we can think about the reality of, of the ongoing presence of human slavery in different parts of the world, the reality of human trafficking even in our own country and even in our own community. And at some point, isn't it the case that we have to look at these, these situations and, and say that evil goes deeper than simply our superficial explanations? And you see, Jesus acknowledges that. He, he acknowledges the reality of the demonic realm. But fortunately, he's the stronger one. He is the one who has come to bind Satan and his forces. Now, once again, this says something about us. It, it says something about the enslaving reality of sin and brokenness. You see, Jesus hasn't simply come to forgive. He's also come to free us. And it's important to see that these themes go together because here's the deal. In some Christian circles, it feels like all we talk about is, well, Jesus came to forgive. We need to let people know that he came to forgive, and that's true. In other Christian circles, there's a lot of emphasis on, well, you know, Jesus came to, to destroy evil and evil systems and corruption and injustice, so we need to stand up and be part of that. And that's, that's true as well. But what we see in the pages of Scripture is these themes actually go together. You see, through the work of the cross, Jesus has paid the debt of our sin, and in paying the debt for our sin, he has disarmed the evil forces of the spiritual realm. We see this clearly, for instance, in Colossians chapter 2. Notice this, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Right? There's forgiveness. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. You see, together we see at the work of the cross the reality of forgiveness, but also liberation from enslavement to sin. I had a conversation with several friends earlier this week about this text. In the conversation, this comment was made, well, that sounds, you know, that sounds great, George, but the reality is it still feels flat. Because the reality is I still sin. Right? There's, Jesus is saying he's, he's binding the strong man, and yet Satan still has influence. 
So maybe it would be helpful just to think a little more clearly <clears throat> about how the work of the gospel actually conquers evil in our lives. So let me just take a couple of minutes to, to walk you through the way Satan works and the way the gospel responds. Through the pages of scripture, first of all, we see the reality that Satan is a tempter. Satan is a tempter. And foundational to all of his temptation is the argument, you can't trust God, right? You can't, you can't trust him. Going back to the garden, you, really, has he said that? Can you trust him? No, you can't trust him. That's foundational to all of Satan's work in our lives. You can't trust him. You need to make it work on your own. And yet when I come to the good news of Jesus Christ, even as we see it in the pages of Mark's gospel, I see that God is faithful to his promises, right? I mean, even the way Mark tells the story of Jesus, it's to see him as the fulfillment of certain Old Testament promises that, that said God would be faithful. It, it may take longer than you think, but God would be faithful in carrying out his promises. So when I understand the gospel, it begins to disarm Satan as the tempter. In the pages of scripture, Satan is also presented as a deceiver, right? He wants to deceive me in different ways into believing, well, I've got to make, for life to work, I have to do it on my own. So for instance, maybe I'm, I'm really vulnerable to the idea that, you know, for life to work, I, I, need, I need the approval of other people. I need the approval of others. Now, all of us, we need love, we need affirmation, but some of us can make an idol out of it. So that, that becomes the, the ultimate goal and end of our lives. And when we pursue that in, in, in unhealthy ways, we may find ourselves trying to be someone we're not. You know, I'm the kid at school that always morphs into a different person depending on the crowds I'm with. I'm that person who always wants to do whatever you want me to do because I want your approval. I'm that person who hides behind a facade because I don't really want you to know the true person I am because if you knew the true person that I am, I'm not sure you would like me. And this the deceiver, Satan, is saying, yeah, that's it. you got to do that. That's what you have got to do that. That is the only, you've got to take this into your own hands, and that's the only way you can make life work. And yet when I understand the gospel, I understand the reality that through the work of Christ, the debt created by my sin has been paid, and I am deeply loved in ways I can't fully fathom or imagine. All right? I mean, once again, if, if this is helpful to you, maybe to, to put yourself in the story right at the beginning of, of chapter 3. You know, Jesus goes into the synagogue, and, and there's this guy, and he's got a withered hand. And Jesus calls him out front. And I can only imagine how embarrassing this was. Because in calling me out front, you just exposed my weakness. Perhaps he was a guy that, you know, kind of went around going like this or did things to hide, hide this, this problem. That Jesus calls him out front. I can only imagine how embarrassing that was. But Jesus doesn't call him out front to embarrass him. Jesus calls him out front to restore him, to experience the depth of his love. And that's when he says, stretch out your hand. And the text also tells us that Jesus was absolutely frustrated with all these religious leaders around who were hard-hearted. They didn't comprehend the love that Jesus had for this man. So Satan wants me to be deceived into thinking, I've got to make it work, and you've got to do, you know, I've got, this is how you've got to make it work, you've got to go for it. And 
Yet the good news of Christ confronts me with the reality that I'm deeply loved. Furthermore, another way Satan operates is he is an accuser. We see that in scripture as well, right? He is an accuser. So that when I do blow it, he, you, you did it again. Look at you. You did it. You failed. You screwed up. You messed up. Look how guilty you are. And some of us know the weight of that, don't we? For some of us, it's like there are these mental recordings at times playing over and over in the back of our heads. You blew it, you blew it, you blew it. And you just carry that around with you. But see, when I understand the good news of Christ, I understand the depth of his forgiveness. And I understand the ongoing reality of forgiveness that continually invites me into relationship, even when I've blown it. So once again, to give you an example from the Gospel of Mark, you know, as, you, as, the, as the scenes build to the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciple that blows it big time is Peter, who denies Jesus. And yet in chapter 16, as, as the women encounter these angels after the resurrection, they're, they're told to give a message to the disciples and to Peter. He's called out specifically. Why? Because he's being restored. He's called out specifically so that he can experience the forgiveness that only comes through the gospel. Finally, Satan is described as one who brings death, a death bringer. And yet I know through the gospel the reality of the new life that I experience. So I encourage you to see that Jesus comes to bind the strong man to conquer evil and in different ways the good news of Christ disarms the work of Satan in your life. Very quickly, um, the last thing that I want you to see in this passage is Jesus creates a new community. He creates a new family, right? He says, who, who are my mother and brother and sisters? Well, it's, it's these seated around me. He's creating a new family. And what, what we're being challenged to see is that as he comes... He doesn't simply come and bring forgiveness. He doesn't simply come to conquer evil. He comes so that we can be a part of a new family that is experiencing this together. We'll see more of that as Mark's gospel unfolds. So Mark wants us to see that Jesus doesn't fit into our pre-existing categories. He wants us to see the disruptive reality of Jesus. It's like he wants you to Take a step back and say, wow, this changes everything. He's come to truly forgive. He's come to conquer evil. He's come to bring me into a new family. And it's in that context that we are to hear the invitation, follow me. Follow me. It's in that context that we are to hear the words, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever chooses to embrace this radical, disruptive good news. Let's pray together. Gracious God, I confess, uh, sometimes it's so easy to put Jesus in, a, in, in our little box. We have different boxes of different shapes and sizes, but there are different ways in which we, we try to cram Jesus into our 
pre-existing categories. And yet, as we read in Mark's gospel, he, he doesn't fit into our categories. He transforms them. Because of the radical, disruptive, life-changing nature of his person and mission. And Father, I pray that it's in the context of understanding that mission that we would hear the invitation to discipleship. I pray that we would understand this journey of following Jesus is a journey where we are forgiven. It's a journey where you have bound Satan and given us the tools so that we don't have to be enslaved anymore. And it's a journey where you bring us into new relationships as part of your church family. Father, may we understand that disruptive mission clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. And now it's in light of that mission 